the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Carol Bossert. This is The Museum Life, and where we talk about different trends and activities in in the uh, museum community. And today I want to focus our attention on science centers and science museums. As those of you who have been listening to the show know, I uh, started out my career as a scientist, and I've worked in a variety of museums, including uh, natural history museums and science science centers and so this the the concept of science communication and the importance of science and technology education in our country particularly for our young people is very near and dear to me and so uh as our guest today, I'm thrilled to have with us uh, Alan Friedman. Alan uh, was is uh, currently a museum consultant. He has worked with over 60 institutions worldwide, uh, helping them in their development of science uh, science exhibits and, and science museums. And you probably, many of you, recognize uh, Dr. Friedman's name uh, from 1980. To 2006, he was the director and CEO of the New York Hall of Science, which is New York City's Public Science and Technology Center. And I think that it is fair to say that Alan really uh, steered the ship not only through the New York Hall of Sciences development, but really for many, many science centers over the, what it was one of its really rapid growth periods. Uh, Alan has uh, numerous uh, awards and uh, publications to his name, and I could think of no one better to help us understand where science centers have been and where they're going and what their future may hold uh, as, as a group of museums within this institutional fabric. Uh, so welcome, Alan. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to join you. Alan, before we get started, um, I uh, could you just share with our audience a little bit? Uh, you are, as I mentioned, uh, uh, have been a, um, an administrator in in uh, science museums, but you're also a scientist in your own right. You hold a doctorate in physics. So I I think it would be helpful if we understood sort of how you made that transition from scientist to science communica- uh, communicator. Sure, and... Um one thing to say is a lot of people have done this. Uh, I would guess uh, maybe half of the people who work in science centers originally began thinking they were going to become scientists and work in a laboratory and 
uh, become college professors and stroll back and forth with their pipes and tweed jackets with adoring students following along in their wake. Um, and that's what I thought I was going to do. And I was uh, teaching at a um, small college in Ohio, very nice small college, and I was enjoying it. But then I stumbled upon this world of science centers. And there were two things about it that really um, intrigued me. One was that, uh, by comparison, uh, the fields of science themselves are relatively large. I was a solid-state physicist, and there were about 10,000 solid-state physicists around the world working in a 1,000 different universities and research organizations. And the chance for me to make a contribution to that field um, was, shall we say, a little limited. If you weren't really fabulously, superbly genius type good, you would certainly still be able to contribute to the field, but your name probably wouldn't get known very well or very widely. And you'd feel your life's contribution was somewhat limited. On the other hand, at the, that time, which is the, the early 1970s, there were only about 24 science centers in the United States and maybe an equal number and spread through the rest of the world. So you went from being one of a thousand to being one of a, a few dozen. And that gave you a bigger opportunity to, to make your own little splash and contribute to the field. The second reason was that I discovered early in my experience with science centers that they actually do science. Now, it's not physics or chemistry, but it's the science of how to communicate science. And it just turns out that, especially at that time, but even today, we don't know nearly as much about how to communicate science as we know about science itself. So we know a lot about, let's say, quantum physics or the theory of relativity, which I think are beautiful, exciting, uh, dramatic ideas but how to communicate quantum physics and the theory of relativity to people who don't have a years of training in mathematics and in classical physics, that's really a challenge. And we can learn to do it just as we learn to do the science itself. So this ability to continue doing science, albeit a different form, along with the possibility of making a little bigger splash, you know, bigger small frog in a smaller pond, you can still have an influence. So those were the two things that brought me uh, to the realization, I'd rather do communicating science than science itself. I'm glad you brought that up, Alan, this, this concept that uh, science, uh, how we communicate science uh, to, uh, to general audiences, to non-specialist audiences, uh, is, is a science in and of itself. And I know we've had a, on this show, I've had a couple of uh, people who have, have talked about uh, museum evaluation, how we evaluate an exhibit uh, for its effectiveness or, or a 
program. Um, but I, this is a perfect segue, I think, to talk a little bit about what are some of the unique aspects of science museums, how, you know, obviously they don't communicate science in the way we all learn it in school with a teacher up at the front talking, you know, showing us uh, uh, a diagram or um, uh, uh, giving us a, a lecture out of a book. Uh, science, science centers communicate science in some real unique ways don't they? Yes, I think they do. Although we occasionally do in science centers, put people in front of an audience and have them talk away. And a small percentage of the people who do science actually are pretty good talkers. Uh, they can do a fascinating lecture or lecture demonstration, but they don't do it very often because it's not their major uh, line of work. Still, we make use of that technique, but much more commonly, and I think the way most people who visit these places, which, by the way, is over 100 million Americans a year visiting, getting their bodies into science centers, uh, the way we tend to think of, of most of what we do revolves around exhibits and, um, and participatory programming. So the exhibitions are things like the dinosaur in the Natural History Museum. And the only difference in science centers is that our um, exhibits tend to move and tend to be touchable. In fact, we sometimes have to beg people, go ahead, touch it, you're supposed to, it's okay, nobody's going to slap your wrist. So we tend to use exhibits that let visitors operate things. And the reason for this is that in science, whenever possible, the scientist touches things. As soon as you touch them remotely and you use microscopes and telescopes. But you learn by, by poking things and seeing how they respond. And even with something like astronomy, where we can't literally touch the stars, but actually we can because the light that's coming from stars we can manipulate, we can send through prisms and diffraction gratings, we can expand it, we can look at it in different colors. And so we can actually manipulate something coming from the star to learn more about it. That's the kind of experience we want to give people in the science center. That if it's a microscope, you don't just look through it, you can change the magnification, you can change the focus, you can select the sample you're gonna look at, you can move it around. So we tend to use these interactive exhibits as our primary way of helping the public understand what's going on and feel like, full, like they are full-fledged participants in doing science. Yeah, I think that's very interesting um, as well, Alan, and a really good, uh, solid description of, of, uh, of, of the distinctiveness of science centers. You mentioned uh, in the 1970s, you know, there were only about 24 uh, such institutions. Uh, I remember uh, I, too, was, was starting my museum career in the late uh, 1970s, uh, early 80s, and, and there was uh, going to my very first conference of the Association of Science Technology Centers, and there was a real uh, excitement, almost a, uh, a, a, a mission to be the the anti-museum, you know, to, be, to be the place where you could touch things 
where you got to make choices and, uh, you know, like any kind of, of, of mission or a uh, group of, 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 of people who, you know, if, uh, were learning something or, or thinking about something for the new time, uh, for the first time, you know, we were, we were inspired, uh, to say, everybody follow us. This is the new way of doing things. And of course, now, uh, there are many, uh, uh, institutions who uh, are thinking you know, about manipulating things or giving people choices, whether it's in an art museum or a history museum. So it seems as if science museums have not only impacted uh, their immediate field, but they've impacted uh, the entire museum field. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, in the 1970s, we were uh, coming off a couple of of sort of breakthrough ideas and experiments. Uh, first, there had been the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget, who had studied mostly his own children and how they were learning. And he came up with a description of how people learn not just science, but pretty much anything. And it seemed that they went, that the children went through several stages. And one of them was concrete learning. In which they, they did literally have to, to move their bodies around to see things from different and new perspectives. And they needed concrete experiences, physical experiences to which they could attach things. Later on, they became more sophisticated learners and could learn something essentially just by looking at it or listening to it by hearing. Um, and didn't have to have a physical manipulative. But there's a stage in the development of our ability to learn in which we do need concrete things. So that theory was very popular. It's still in use today, although it's been modified quite a bit. We have a lot more sophisticated versions, and perhaps Professor Piaget's children were not totally typical of the world's uh, science learners. So it's a small sample size. Right. It was indeed a very small sample size, but it, it turned out a very revealing one. Because certainly there are things that pretty much all children in all cultures have in common. The other were, were a series of experiments that were being done uh, in museums or similar museums, or organizations similar to museums, starting really about the turn of the century with the Deutsches Museum in Munich, and then the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, the one in New York City, one in Paris. Uh, and then in the late 1960s, about the time I discovered this whole field existed, there was the Pacific Science Center, the Exploratorium, the New York Hall of Science, a number of places that built essentially all their exhibitions in the hands-on style. And they were popular and they were fun. And they were fun both for the people who visited, but also for the people who conceived them and built them. So that, I think, spurred the great period of growth in the, starting in the mid-70s and lasting pretty much all the way through the rest of the century when everyone wanted to build one of these. So how have uh, uh, science centers matured? Do in in your perspective, I mean, it's been what now 40, 40 years 
since the first science centers have really uh, uh, were there, as you've just described. And, and over the years, I remember certainly in the 90s, it seemed as if every city was building a science center that was anchoring its new downtown redevelopment or revitalization. How are those institutions doing? They're doing pretty well, thank you. Um, I would guess that this, the survival rate of science centers, even with the ups and downs of the latest economy, is somewhere in the high 96, 97% range. There have been a few failures, a few that have gone under um, because they just got old and tired um, or they lost their financial support or enough of it um, or their whole region around them was was changing so by and large though the ones that were were built in the 70s the 80s and the 90s are still with us and many of them are still thriving uh, their attendance is not growing the way it used to but that's largely because everybody's going in many cities the visitorship at the science centers is um, the majority of the population coming every year to see them and I, I love these places, but I will confess that they're, they're not for everybody. I mean, I don't go to certain kinds of, of museums that are about topics that don't interest me. And I can understand that there are a few people in the world for whom science is not as totally fascinating as it is for you and for me. Okay, so if we can get half the population visiting at least once a year, we can feel pretty good, but we do have to realize we will have reached a limit of growth. And that's where I think the field is maturing most. We're now focused not on how to build faster and faster, add more wings, add more exhibits, add more theaters, but rather how do we take what we have and make it even more useful? How do we connect even better with our existing communities without necessarily trying to expand our reach to be regional and national and even global, we're saying, okay, we got our prime audience right here, and how do we serve them better? So I think we've switched from a mode of expanding all the time to a mode of a little more self-reflection, understanding what actually is it that we're doing for people that's bringing them back, and how can we become more useful? And are there parts of the community that are lightly connected with us, but that we might be offering some services or working with them in some way? Um, a lot of places are looking at what can we do out in the community instead of just within the walls of our building. The uh, foundation director, Ann Bowers, who's the chair of the Noyce Foundation, likes to say that we're in a stage where science centers need to move from being nice to being necessary. I think that is uh, a, an intriguing idea that I'd like to unpack a little bit, but uh, we're going to have to take a break. So uh, I think it will be a good idea. We'll break right now. And uh, when we come back, Alan can talk to us a little bit more about how science centers are moving from being nice to being necessary. You're listening to uh, The Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. Remember, you can always uh, reach us by telephone, and you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. We'll be back in just a minute. Thank you.
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. And we're here today with Alan Friedman, uh, who's been telling us about uh, the state of the uh, state of state of science centers. And before break, Alan was talking a little bit about the history of science centers, a couple of the uh, the the ideas that sparked their their rapid and uh, expanding growth and uh, we were talking that they really, in the last 40 years, have matured. I mean, most of us have been to a science center. But Alan and I both have to admit that science centers aren't for everybody. They are a very specific topic of, uh, of the human endeavor. And while Alan and I probably go to every science center in every city that we can find, uh, not everybody, we realize that not everyone shares our passion and interest. But right before break, Alan was, uh, saying something extremely intriguing. And that was, uh, you, you were quoting a, a colleague of yours from the Noise Foundation, and we should probably uh, help every our audience know who uh, you know what that foundation is all about. But talking about that, that science museums now have to move from being nice things to have to being necessary things to have. So I I wonder, Alan, if you could uh, expand on that idea a little bit more. 
Yes. Um, most science centers um, began life with a large amount of their support coming from their local government. So the museum that I directed for 22 years, the New York Hall of Science, was funded oh, overwhelmingly, 80 or 90 percent, maybe even a little more, by the city of New York. So it was funded by local government, which meant that as long as local government had tons of money to give away, um, that was fine. It was nice to have a science center. On the other hand, when things started to get tight, uh, in particular in New York City, the fiscal crisis that this city had in the late 1970s, well, the city no longer had a whole lot of money. In fact, they were flirting with bankruptcy. And so one of they had to reduce their support for those things that were merely nice because other things were necessary. The fire department, the schools, um, the police department, those were necessary. And so lo and behold, the Hall of Science woke up one day to discover it had no source of support and it closed its doors. So today, unfortunately, this is true in a lot of places, at least in the United States. In Europe, um, most science centers are supported by their national governments, almost completely. But in the United States, the federal government, except for supporting the Smithsonian, which it does very generously, um, provides only a tiny percentage of support for keeping all of the nation's some close to 400 science centers going. And local governments have found themselves increasingly strapped. So unless science centers become necessary, like schools and police and fire departments, then it is likely that they will not survive. Uh, or they find some other source of support, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot out there. We still need our local government support, primarily for those unglamorous things, like keeping the floors clean, keeping electricity on, um, keeping the water flowing. Uh, there are many generous private donors and some corporations and some foundations, but they want to support exciting, new, innovative activities. They don't want to support keeping the floors clean. That's very, I think that that's a very important point, uh, to, to make, Alan. Um, I was in London, uh, just, oh, about a month ago, and of course, the very first thing I did when I got out of my meetings was, uh, was go down and go to the Science Museum in London. I, I, uh, uh, I always like to visit that um, when I'm when I'm in London, and I was amazed. It was Tuesday afternoon. It was rainy, as it often is in London in the fall. It was three o'clock in the afternoon, and the line to get into the science center was almost out the door, uh, just because of the number of people who were going uh, going through the doors. And uh, there were parents and children. There were children together. There were were young adults. It seemed like maybe it was the you know the place you took your date at, on a you know at, for a coffee and a trip around the science museum. And uh, it was wonderful to see that that uh, institution so full of life with so many people. But of course, it is supported by its government and it is free. 
Yes. And what has it done, we need to ask ourselves, to make itself so necessary that the government continues to support it generously? Part of it is that they, they have developed some other sources of support, so they're not totally dependent on government. Uh, they have a pretty fantastic gift shop. I was, I, we must have just missed each other because I was there in <laughs> mid-November, and well, I was sorely tempted to just um, spend my month's worth of consulting income in their gift shop. Uh, and they have it online, too, so I'm still being tempted. So they've developed other sources of funding, including foundations and some corporations. But they have really worked hard to make themselves a necessary part of the overall system of acculturating people to living in a world that, for better and for worse, is largely being shaped by science and technology. So they always have a section of the museum about the latest things that are happening that could affect your life. Uh, debates about um, privacy, for example, and exhibits about how data is about you is collected and stored. Uh, I can remember a very exciting exhibit they had in which you were um, told that to prevent children from being lost and even from being kidnapped, someone had proposed implanting a GPS chip, sort of like we do for um, keeping our keys from getting lost in our cell phones. What if you had a little chip implanted in every child so that if they became lost, you could find them. Um, and you could call the police and they could say, ah, we found your child. She's in this ice cream store a few, uh, few blocks down from where you live. Well, that's a, an interesting technological solution. But it's also an incredible invasion of privacy. And do we want to do it? So the exhibition that I saw presented you with this technological opportunity, but then invited you to talk with other visitors and to leave your comments and to participate in surveys right on the spot. Is this something we should actually do? Because not all things that are possible are good ideas to do. The Science and Museum in London is also uh, working very hard to reach out into communities to bring people to the museum from uh, minority cultures that might not be used to going, to be useful to what's happening in the schools, to align programs with the needs of the schools. What's hard to do in the classroom? Well, let's do that in the Science Center, where maybe it's easier because we have more equipment. Uh, we have specialists in creating the technologies to make that point clear. So these are some of the ways in which good science centers, and nearly all of them are becoming good, they have to, to survive, are becoming good at becoming necessary for their communities, providing services that the communities feel and, and know that they need that aren't easily available elsewhere. 
I think that's a very important uh, point that you raised, uh, Alan. Uh, it, it, uh, the example that you used shows here's something that is relevant to your daily life, a technology. Uh, here's something where not only can you learn a little bit more about it, but you can talk to others about it. And it's this idea of Science Center as a forum of, of uh, communication that has always intrigued me. And so if uh, it would be, I think, interesting to talk a little bit more about how science centers might uh, position themselves a little more fully to maybe lead and direct those discussions, whether the discussion is in the science center itself or uh, perhaps as, a, as an electronic outreach well, Carol, you know, one of the, the trends happening around the world, and this one didn't start here, I think it started in Europe, are called science cafes. And the idea behind the science cafe is that you you tend to meet not in a museum, although the museum sponsors a lot of them, but you, you meet in a bar or a restaurant uh, or a community center. You have someone who speaks very briefly about some contemporary issue like privacy and security um, or fracking or, um, um, in this country, belief in evolution, which amazingly is still controversial. Um, you have someone give a brief introduction, and then it's sort of an, an open community forum for people to express their views, to disagree politely with each other, um, to kick ideas around. And these have become very popular in a lot of places. The trick is you need a neutral convener. If you have someone on one side who is convening a discussion, they're going to, whether they are consciously aware of it or not, but they usually are, they're going to stack the deck a little in favor of their point of view. And science centers have achieved an enviable reputation in most of the communities in which they operate, for being pretty fair-minded. They do respect science. So when you get the anti-science community, um, let's say the astrologers, um, they're probably not comfortable and they don't think it's a fair forum. But for just about anyone else, let's say for discussing fracking or um, discussing privacy, that science centers are try to be neutral brokers. Their position would be, let us help you understand what the facts are, what the issues are, and what's uncertain, what's still to be decided, what things there isn't strong agreement on. And that's the, the territory, the playing field, in which a science cafe can operate most effectively. So I think they're, they're becoming good at this, some of some science centers are doing this on their own turf, but many are doing this out in the communities. And in particular, I went to a, a wonderful meeting in uh, Massachusetts of a group called Story Collider. And Story Collider is a, um, a radio program. And I think it's streamed online as well. And it invites scientists to come and tell stories. And it works actually best in the same venues that stand-up comedy works best. 
less effective in a museum auditorium, but great to take place in a in a restaurant where you can uh, have a glass of wine, listen to someone telling a very personal story about their their life in science or their interaction with science, um, and then have questions and answers and let people offer their own views. It's a wonderful format, and it's one of the ways in which science centers are learning to um, to reach more deeply into their communities and engage people and become necessary. That is fascinating, Alan. And, you know, it, it actually reminds me of, uh, of one of uh, one of the museum pioneers at the turn of the of the last century, John Cotton Dana, who was a, a li- as you know, he was, was a librarian. He then came uh, from Denver to work at the Newark Public Library and eventually founded the Newark Museum. I've talked a lot about of that uh, that my audience knows because that was my very first uh, museum job. Oh. But but the but the. Uh, but the point that uh, uh, Dana made is that museums must go out into the community. And, of course, he was always talking about libraries, how libraries are always within walking distance uh, optimally to, to in their neighborhood, to their neighborhood community. Uh, so it, it sounds as if what, you know, the example that, that you're using with the Science Cafe is, is sort of a rift on uh, that. That recommendation that that the science center is a wonderful place, but it needs to also have these these satellite opportunities. This is a small world. Uh, I didn't <laughs> know you had started out at the Newark Museum. It is one of my favorites, and in fact, I did a, a tiny bit of consulting for them a couple of years ago, and they're still doing it. <laughs> they are still looking for original ways to reach out to their communities. They have one great advantage over most of us in that it is, um, it still aspires to be uh, a museum about everything. So it is an art museum. It is a natural history museum. It is a history museum. It is all of the above. And it has the opportunity to look for how those areas connect. Is there an art to science? Is there a science to art? Uh, to what extent do both art and science respond to to history, to things that are going on in daily life and that went on. Well, I think that is a very fertile uh, area for a little bit uh, more discussion. But before we get into that, we're going to take our second break. Uh, you are listening to The Museum Life uh, with Carol Bossert. Today our guest is Alan Friedman. We will be back in just a moment. Uh, remember, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. Please join us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. And today our guest is Alan Friedman. Alan and I have been talking about the state of science centers in this country, uh, how they are now expanding uh, beyond their walls and their doors to work within the communities. We talked about science cafes. And right before break, uh, Alan and I realized that we shared yet another connection, and that was our beloved Newark Museum, a rare and wonderful institution that still has areas of art, science, uh, and technology and history all under one roof. And because of that, it has an opportunity to make connections. I think that that's one, if I could get on my soapbox for a minute, Alan, that's one of the areas where I must uh, criticize some of uh, our beloved science centers is sometimes uh, you can walk in into their galleries and listen to their programs and it's as if science happened someplace else in some other world but not by real people and not on our planet. Uh, I think it's sometimes we work so hard to get the science right uh, that we forget that we can make some connections to the history and to the art and the other aspects of human culture that can uh, remind everyone that science is, in fact, a human endeavor that is affected by uh, the thinkings of the time. Right. It's, um, however, a malady, um, a short-sightedness that is pervasive in society. Uh, It isn't just um, a shortcoming of science centers. If you look anywhere, um, uh, read the headlines in today's newspaper and in politics, in economics, in banking, in the stock market, in medicine, there's a tendency to try to abstract and deal with things, make them simple by saying, this is just a technical matter about medicine or just uh, a minor regulatory 
quirk in the banking laws without realizing that each one of these things comes complete with a history, with personalities, with uh, lots of interests that do not always um, follow along the same paths. And everything in life requires an interdisciplinary approach. So why do we do it? Why do we pretend that art can be removed from history and science can be removed from philosophy and religion can be removed from everything else? Uh, we do it because it's a very convenient fiction. It would be hard to have a university organized around everything. It's very convenient to have a university divided up into the physics department and the English department and the history department, and even to subdivide those into uh, American history, European history, uh, Asian history. It's so convenient. And it helps, it has helped and continues to help because sometimes you just really do need to focus down on one difficult challenge and get it done. But what you lose by that reductionist view, which is very powerful and lets us solve immensely complex problems by simplifying them practically to death, what you lose is Sometimes what you're looking for, the understanding you want to have, the solution you want to have, does not exist within one discipline. And that's where the science centers, I think, have a great opportunity and a great challenge, is the opportunity to take that broader view. Let's look at something like global warming and climate change very contentious around the world. If you treat it as a purely scientific problem, that is, do we have an adequate model to understand what is happening and what the consequences will be, you almost certainly will not get people to give up some of life's pleasures and economies, like having to switch all their light bulbs and having to drive less and do other things that are probably going to be necessary for the survival of the planet. Because people who are not into the sophisticated arguments about mathematical models for climate are really not going to be motivated to say, well, judging by some professor's theory that I don't even understand, I'm going to lower my lifestyle. Uh, Leon Letterman, the Nobel Prize winning physicist from Chicago, has said that the, the problem with climate change is not a scientific one. It's a lifestyle problem. And we haven't developed a lifestyle consistent with the planet we occupy. So I think probably the opportunity and the challenge is to deal with some of these issues, not just as matters of science or technology, but as matters of history, of economics, of, of culture, and indeed of art and philosophy and religion. So I sort of envision a future for science centers at which they, they would no longer be science centers, but they would be centers for understanding, let's say, climate, or understanding diversity, or understanding representation of nature. Uh, these all have a connection to science, but they're all so much broader than science. 
and they can all be understood much better in a context of history and art and civics and religion. Um, these are, like it or not, they're part of our lives, and they're part of every one of these issues. And as long as we pretend we can just, just deal with the science part, just the facts, ma'am, all I want are the facts, it just isn't going to work. You know, Alan, uh, that reminds me of our, uh, I was interviewed Randy Roberts on this program, uh, just last Friday. And we were talking about the challenges that all museums face, uh, to become, uh, agents of change. Uh, agents of social change and social justice. Uh, we, we were talking more about art museums and history museums as being reflective of society. Uh, but what you're talking about is that science centers can uh, have an opportunity to sort of regain perhaps their distinctiveness as being places to talk about those, those topics that are timely, uh, are of great concern and are, in fact, very complex. Yeah, I think we, we need to do both, actually. Uh, there's still a role, and um, I, too, saw this in London. They had just opened an exhibit about the Large Hadron Collider. The exhibit's called Collider, and it's about the discovery of something called the Higgs boson, popularly known as the God particle, <laughs> which won the Nobel Prize for Mr. Higgs. Well, that's very fundamental science. It has, as everyone who worked on the exhibit and actually worked on the discovery of this particle admit, there is no practical application whatsoever. Whether the Higgs existed or not, uh, what it's like, um, there's no way to make money from it. There's no way it's going to improve our lives, except maybe intellectually a little bit. Um, it's one of those things about how the universe is put together that some of us find absolutely fascinating. But I can't say that the billions and billions of dollars spent on that um, are going to feed the hungry or end injustice and poverty. So why do we do it? Well, it's. I think the same reason we do a lot of things like science and and history and um, art, it, it isn't because we had see an immediate benefit from it, but it's, it has something to do with the human spirit that's important, even if it has no practical application. So I think science centers need to continue to do both. We need to present the story of fundamental physics, chemistry, and biology. We need to speculate on the origins of the universe and how life arose, even if it has no practical benefit. At the same time, as part of this opportunity to connect more broadly with unity, at the time when we have an opportunity to illuminate issues that worry people and that are very practical and for which we need to become interdisciplinary, and maybe even just sort of forget which discipline we're in and deal with the issue in all of its manifestations. We need to do both of these things. And that's the exciting challenge. How do we do both? How do we keep our identity? How do we keep the, the funding stream we need to operate? How do we keep our audiences wanting to come back for more and feeling we're necessary for their communities? 
How do we do all these things simultaneously? That certainly is the big challenge. Do you have some suggestions for our Science Museum listeners today? Uh, one thing is just to visit your local science museum and see the extent to which they are moving beyond the very traditional, uh, here's a phenomenon in physics, uh, let's understand it. Uh, how, how are they moving beyond it? It could be actually that a lot more is going on than most people realize. You and I, we visit a science museum in every city we go to. We have a little bit of a feeling for where the hotbeds of experimentation are. But even we don't get to that many. You and I belong to a group of consultants. There's 30-something of us. Um, gosh, there's thousands of these places, <laughs> and we're not going to see all of them, and we're going to miss what's going on. I think also people can encourage their local science centers. Uh, you know, not that many people actually stop by and talk to a member of the staff and say, I love that new exhibit. My kids enjoyed it. It was so much fun. I wonder if you're thinking about doing an exhibit about, and now mention your favorite thing. What would you like to know more about? What would you like to understand? What natural phenomena or man-made technology or um, something you've read about, which you'd like to know more about and maybe see and actually get your hands on. Uh, I think that's been happening. People have discovered these things called 3D printers. At the uh, Two years ago at a museum conference, there was one exhibitor showing 3D printers suitable for installing on the floor of a museum so people could see the technology. This year, there must have been 20. And I expect they'll be appearing in museums and to some extent driven by the public saying, we keep reading about these things in the newspaper. It's going to transform industry and pretty soon they're going to be cheap enough so everyone can have one at home. What can it do? How does it work? What does it look like? So we may get visitor driven exhibitions and programs. I think that would be delightful. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, and I think that the, the point you were making is so, uh, so very important. I want to repeat it. And that is museum goers can have a conversation with their museum. They can have it directly by talking with people. They can, uh, museums actually, and science centers I know in particular, actually read those comment cards. Uh, so don't be afraid to, to start a dialogue with your, with your museum. Well, I think you'll find your museum people um, are just thrilled that you care enough to let them know what you think, especially if you have a new idea. Now, they may not always do it or even be able to do it, but you will still have planted something in their minds. Uh, many, many years ago, I reviewed um, an exhibit at the Smithsonian, and I talked to the senior curator, and he pointed out to me one feature which I hadn't noticed very much. There was a telephone in the exhibit. And the exhibit was about communications, so there are actually many telephones, but this one worked. And it had a simple label. It said, talk to a curator. It said, pick up this phone, and if someone is available, they'll be happy to talk with you and answer any questions. Well, he said, this is Barney Frank at the uh, 
uh, Smithsonian's now called the Museum of American History. He said, do you know what the most common question asked was? What's a curator? Yes. Well, for museum people, this is very funny because it's a title we use and we're very familiar with it. And and everyone had sort of forgotten that it is not a title that has much currency outside the little world of museums. Yes, you're absolutely right, Alan. And I think that we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. Uh, I'm going to have to cut you uh, off a little bit here, Alan. But I, I must say that this was an extremely inspiring discussion today. I think your points were well taken. And I'm uh, really excited about the future of science centers in a way that I really haven't been before as uh, potential agents of change uh, in their communities. But I think it's going to take both the music. It's been a, a real pleasure to uh, to talk with you. I hope uh, uh, my audience uh, joins me again next week when we have another guest talking about the state of museums and their future. You're listening to The Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. You can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? 